0: So, there's two Bible readings today. Uh, Psalm 24 is the first one that we'll read together. So, if you have a device or a Bible, uh, that would be great to look up with me. Psalm 24 The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Our second reading today is from Leviticus, it's chapter 10, verses 1 to 11. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In, su- in the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elsaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, And said to them, come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair become unkempt, and do not tear your clothes, or you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, all the Israelites, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting, or you will die, because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did as Moses said. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. This is God's word.
1: Morning, everyone. Lovely to see you all here this morning. Uh, Sometimes wondered why Irish dancers uh, traditionally have a pretty straight face and the hands only by the side, while all the work's going on in the legs. Uh, well, there's a number of theories, but they usually have to do with English imperialism, saying that uh, they're not to have fun, or on one one occasion, uh, Elizabeth the first I think, visited and they were to dance for her, and they didn't like that, so they did this kind of thing. Uh, I can't help but think of that every time we sing congregationally. We've got these restrictions that we have to kind of abide by, but we can still uh, do something Uh, wonderful and meaningful. Anyway, uh, I'm delighted to say that we're starting our uh, new sermon series in uh, a wonderful book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus, and uh, I'm going to lead us briefly in prayer and find out where I need to get this thing happening. (laughs) Technology, main of my existence at the moment. There we go. I'm going to lead us briefly in prayer and... uh, Then we'll have an introduction to the book of Leviticus for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're the God who speaks and that you speak to us in your word for our good. We pray that you would move powerfully by your Holy Spirit among us, convicting us of the truths that you'd have us learn, changing us to become more holy like the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning, as I preach an introduction to the book of Leviticus, I have one main goal for us. Uh, It's a goal that can be, uh, I suppose, divided into two parts. Firstly, I want us all to become excited and interested in reading Leviticus. And secondly, uh, I want us all to become confident in understanding the content of the book of Leviticus. Now, if you've ever started reading Leviticus, note, started, you might be thinking this is an overly ambitious goal. Uh, The book can certainly seem tedious, repetitive, archaic, a bit disgusting here and there, and in many ways quite foreign to us and our experience. There's a lot of animal sacrifice going on. I should say bloody animal sacrifice going on, a lot of blood. There's lots of laws and commands, some regarding sicknesses, which are a bit gross, as well as matters to do with the treatment of slaves, the clothes God's people could and couldn't wear, uh, the sexual practices God's people could and couldn't uh, be involved in. There's some icky stuff like what comes out of people's bodies and how to deal with it. And there's a lot of seemingly random stuff, like when to wave the sheaf of the first of your uh, uh, grain of your harvest. But like any other book... In the Torah, that is the the Pentateuch, the first five books of of the Bible, like any other book of the Torah and any other book of the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus has been written for God's church, for Christians, for us here and now. Uh, It is a book ultimately about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It will correct us, rebuke us, train us in righteousness, it will increase our understanding of God's Gospel message and inspire us to live rightly and in obedience to it, which is frankly the most joyful and satisfying uh, way to live. And like any other book of the Torah, the more you understand the broad context, the more you sort of get the big picture of the book of Leviticus, then the smaller details start to make more and more sense. So for today's introductory sermon, Uh, we're going to do just that. We're going to get a sense of the big picture, why Leviticus was written, what its major themes are, and how, generally speaking, it relates to us, this side of Jesus. And uh, if you're following on the outline, we're at point one, which has been titled, Who May Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? Because, believe it or not, that's a very helpful question to ask when it comes to understanding the big picture of the book of Leviticus. Let me explain. I wonder if you've ever heard the saying, you are just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Put up your hand if you've heard that saying before. Yeah, obviously it's an idiomatic expression that means the problem you're trying to solve is merely a small and insignificant part of the major issue. But also, it's obvious that this expression is based on a real event. If there's one thing anyone knows about the Titanic, it's that it sank. Rearranging the deck chairs would be solving a problem that fades into insignificance given the impending doom of the vessel. I suspect that even Jono would not have been rearranging the chairs on the Titanic had he known <laughs> that the boat was sinking. Well, for God's first chosen people, the nation of Israel, they too had an idiomatic saying, probably a number of them, but they had an idiomatic saying that was based on a real historic event. In their case, it came in the form of a question. You see it in Psalm 15 and verse 1, where it says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? And again, we see it in Psalm 24, which we had read for us just before. Uh, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? It's a theme that comes up a number of times throughout the Old Testament. One commentator suggests that this question of ascending God's mountain to his house was probably recited by pilgrims upon approaching the temple on uh, Mount Zion during the annual pilgrimage festivals and is referred to as a gate or a, a, an entrance liturgy. The gate liturgy runs as an undercurrent through the narratives of the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, and is found at the heart of its central book, Leviticus. And like our deck chair saying has its origins in the sinking of the Titanic, so the Israelite refrain, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord, has its origin in history. As we come to understand the history of this saying, so we begin to very sharply understand the purpose and the theme of the book of Leviticus. So, what does it mean for an Israelite to say... Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Well, in effect, it's asking the question, who can dwell in the presence of the holy God? I know that for the average Joe on the street, uh, they would assume that if there is such a thing as a heaven where one is in the presence of God for eternity, then that's where they'll probably, likely end up, and, and most people probably will. But in the Bible, that is far from straightforward. Once upon a time, Adam and Eve lived in a garden where God himself would walk among them. But after they decided to defiantly try and take the place of God, he rightly banished them from his presence and set up a gate to prevent them from re-entering. In this case, the gate was cherubim, that is, angelic or heavenly beings, and their cherubim with, in this case, a flaming sword. Uh, I don't know if the flaming sword was a cartoon one like this. Probably not. <laughs> but you don't need to know what cherubim with a flaming sword looked like to know that the message is very clear, and it was immortalised in the words of Gandalf the Great, basically, you shall not pass. Would there ever be a way back into the garden? That is, back into the presence Of the Holy God who gives life and eternal life. Whatever the case, there would certainly not be a way back in for one of Adam and Eve's children, Cain. We know that Cain and Abel could at least present offerings to the Lord, Genesis uh, chapter 4. Presumably the one place you'd think to present an offering to the Lord back then is to the gate of his presence, to outside Eden, where the, the cherubim was stationed. But on one occasion, Cain's offering was not favourable like his brother Abel's. And this put Cain into a jealous anger. God warned Cain, saying to him, "'If you do what is right, will you not be accepted?' But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And as God speaks these words, he's actually giving a brilliant play on words. The word for sin in the original language is identical to the word sin offering. And the word for door translates also equally as entrance. It's true that with all fallen humanity, ourselves included... But sin will take any and every opportunity it gets to work in and through us. But the play on words here hints that it's also true that an acceptable sin offering to the entrance of God's dwelling place uh, may be a way to mitigate the effects of our fallenness and perhaps gives hope that one day the doorway may be opened. For Cain, however, that is not going to be a possibility. I assume you all know the story. Cain murders his brother Abel and God, in his righteous and holy anger against sinfulness, banishes Cain even further away now from the entrance to the garden, further away from the presence of the Lord. Cain has to go further east of the garden, further away from the potential presence of of God to become a wanderer. Who can dwell in the presence of a holy God, or figuratively, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Not Cain. Sadly, Cain becomes a pattern for much of humanity to come. He's not the only one to go east from the entrance to the garden. In Genesis chapter 11, a whole bunch of people also go eastward. They found a plain in Shinar and settled there and again I'm going to assume that you know the story these are the people who ended up building the tower of Babel seeking to forge their own way into heaven and bypass God's gate to dethrone God to make a name for themselves they too ended up being scattered who can come into the presence of the Lord or figuratively who may ascend the holy mountain of the Lord well not Cain and not the Babel builders. After God graciously decided to bring blessing to the world through his chosen servant Abraham, both Abraham and his nephew Lot were growing in wealth and possessions. So as to keep the peace between their families and their workers, Abraham told Lot to go and choose to settle in any direction. Lot chose to travel eastward, figuratively further away from the entrance to God's presence in the garden. He ends up in a lovely little city called Sodom and needs a desperate rescue before God rains down the hellfire in judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah Uh, and even Lot's wife from simply turning back becomes a pillar of salt. Who can come in to the presence of the holy God? Or figuratively, who may ascend his holy mountain? Well, not Cain, not the Babel builders, not the Sodomites or the people of Gomorrah, not even Lot's wife. And almost, but by the skin of his teeth, not even Lot. When Abraham's descendants had become a huge nation, God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses. The first time since walking in the Garden of Eden, God said to Moses that that he would meet with his people on top of his holy mountain, Mount Sinai. God descends upon the mountain in a dense cloud with thunder and lightning and smoke and horrendous noise like Dan read out for us this morning. God says that the Israelites can only come to a barrier near the base of the mountain. But up to a certain point, Moses' brother Aaron and two of his sons and a bunch of Israelite leaders can ascend his holy mountain. Up to a higher point still, Moses alone can ascend the mountain of the Lord. But even when Moses comes into the cloud, into the presence of God, he isn't quite there. As you see, the very technical theological term I've applied to Moses being in the presence of God there is sorda. If you remember the story, God places him in the cleft of a rock so that when God walks by, like he used to walk by in Eden, Moses is not directly in the presence of God. Exodus 33, 22, uh, when my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in a rock and cover you with my hand Until I have passed by. Who can come into the presence of the holy God? Or to now change the question to suit the history a bit more closely who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Well, not Cain, not the Babel builders, not the Sodomites or Lot's wife. The Israelites can now stand at the bottom. Aaron, with some priests and leaders, can go up halfway ish. Moses can go to the top, sort of, with great protection. The question isn't ultimately answered. Now, even though God's people are then quick to defy him with the unthinkable idolatry of worshipping the golden calf, at Moses' mediation, God still decides he'll remain with his people. It's not possible for them, would you believe, to pick up the mountain and take it with them. So God gives them instructions to build a tent that resembles the mountain. A tent whereby the Israelites can approach the outer courtyard, the Levites can go up halfway into the holy place, and once a year... Though shrouded by smoke, the high priest can figuratively go all the way to the top, that is, to the most holy place. But it's still not clear that someone can actually ascend the mountain of the Lord. It's still not clear that a sinner can come into the presence of the holy God. Just as the cherubim guarded the way back to Eden, so at the very top of this makeshift mountain they will place two cherubim above the ark of the covenant signifying the way into god's presence is still guarded but moses and the israelites follow god's instructions and build his tabernacle it's the last third of the book of exodus there's a great lot of detail there's a great lot of hard work but finally the tabernacle the tent that is like the mountain, is set up, and it actually works. At the end of the book of Exodus, we're told that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God was on top of the huge mountain, remember, the whole shaking thing and the smoke and the, the, the violence, everyone freaking out. God was on top of the huge mountain, but now he's contained, for want of a much, much better word, he's contained in the portable tent. It's like having lightning in a jar. Now that he's shrunk down, very, very figuratively, very figuratively shrunk down, maybe there could be a way to ascend the mountain of the Lord, to come into his presence. But then comes a great letdown. Even though the whole thing has worked, still, no one can enter the presence of the Holy God. Right at the end of the book of Exodus... We read the words, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But, verse 35, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the book of Exodus ends with a great anticlimax. We're still asking the question, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can come into the presence of... Of the Holy God. And that's where the book of Leviticus begins. God knows the problem. And so, the very first words of the book of Leviticus, from where the book actually gets its name, are the words, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord. Bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. And so begins a rather comprehensive lot of teaching on what needs to happen in order for a sinful people to be able to come into the presence of a holy God, to ascend his mountain. Leviticus teaches us what's actually going on in reality. Whether you recognize it or not, when a sinful person can remain unconsumed upon coming into the presence of the Holy God. It gives you a a physical picture of what is, in truth, taking place. We learn that atonement through sacrifice, particularly blood sacrifice, is essential. We learn that a priest, that is a mediator, is essential. We learn that approaching God on his terms is essential and his terms can be summarized if you had to with one word holy you need to be holy to come into the presence of the holy God so many of the commands in Leviticus are designed to make the Israelites different and set apart from the nations around them to make them quite literally a peculiar people Uh, because the holy God is is different to anything we might ever conceive of. He is a peculiar God. There are three basic states we learn that one can be in that kind of correspond to the distance you have from the presence of the Lord. You could be unclean or clean or holy. From the negative, we learn that our sinfulness is all-pervasive and it's a far more serious problem than you or I are ever able to work out or appreciate on our own. Uh, one of the great ways to work out if someone truly relies on what God has revealed instead of ultimately relying on their own logic and reasoning is whether they see themselves as more sinful than they're able to fathom. Many of the commands in Leviticus are designed to teach people the absolute inescapable pervasiveness of, of human sinfulness you can go from unclean to clean and you can go from clean to holy but you can never go back from holy to clean as soon as you're involved with anything that doesn't reflect the holiness of god you move from holiness back to unclean and start the process again we learn that god's righteous wrath towards sin and therefore, towards sinners, needs to be turned aside before he can be approached. But there's something else we learn as we go through the book of Leviticus that really unlocks the meaning for us. If we do what the Bible teaches us to do and echo the Israelite question, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, then as we rightly go through Leviticus seeking an answer, one of the most important things that will happen for us is we discover there is a better question that's often the case when we read the bible we have a question that we rightly look to god's word to to answer but often god shows us that an essential part of the answer involves a modified or an additional question and that's what the book of leviticus does for us who can ascend the mountain of the lord is a right and biblical thing to ask let me show you now how leviticus uses that to bring us to the better question The Torah is made up of five books, the books of Moses, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Leviticus is in the middle, and Leviticus itself has a middle. Among all the laws and ceremonies prescribed, there's one that really stands out roughly halfway through the book, and that is, of course, the Day of Atonement, uh, which we Jews call the, the Yom Kippur. It's still referred to as Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. There's some really obvious symmetry in the way Leviticus is structured, both before and after the Yom Kippur. In the first seven chapters, we learn about the required sacrifices, then of the need for priests and what the right proceedings are, then of how to go from being ceremonially unclean to being clean, so as to be able to approach God and hopefully become holy. On the other side of Yom Kippur... We start off with what's to be considered holy and what's to be considered unholy or profane in daily life, much like how it is to be clean and unclean. Then we get a bunch of laws concerning the priests and their operation to make the whole thing work, and then we get a number of festivals or sacred times which might be considered a counterpart to the sacrifices because they demonstrate what it is to live in the favour and in the presence of God which has been made possible through the sacrifice. But on the Day of Atonement, on the Yom Kippur, the majority of the blood sacrifices, the majority of the duties of the priests, are not about having sinful people being able to come into the presence of the Holy God. That is most certainly there. Uh, And it's the one time, in fact, where the, the high priest... Uh, who represents the rest of Israel, can go into the presence of the Holy God. But much more of what takes place is the cleaning of God's tabernacle, the cleansing of God's holy mountain. It's one thing to ask, how can a sinner come into the presence of a Holy God? But at the center of Leviticus, we're forced to reconsider the issue from the other side. How can a holy God come into the presence of a sinful people? And once you see that that's the much bigger question, you reconsider the book of Leviticus in light of its centre. Obviously, I'm uh, not preaching an exegetical this morning. This is, this is a, a, an overview. But if I had to give a main point still, I'd say something like, to find out, how sinful people can be in the presence of the holy God, you need to learn how a holy God can dwell in the presence of a sinful people. That's what the book of Leviticus is about. That's what it's going to do for us. The gospel message starts with God at the centre, not with us. Hence, our title for this series, as you can see, is How Can a Holy God Dwell with a Sinful People? There is a rightness to asking the question, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? That is, who can come into the presence of the holy God and live? It's a question the Bible wants us to be concerned with. It's a question that Leviticus wants us to be concerned with. But the problem with every religion that the world has ever known, and every cult that the world has ever known, is that they fail to move beyond that question. Leviticus teaches us about our approach to God. But as we move through its teaching, it reveals to us that we need to be more concerned about God's approach to us. And that's why the book of Leviticus is ultimately about the person and work of Jesus Christ, the God who approached us. Because only in and through Jesus can the holy God come into the presence of sinful people like us without having compromised his holiness leviticus teaches us that god is so righteous and so holy it's a huge issue for him to allow us to dwell in his joyful life-giving and eternal presence without him compromising his perfect character initially he needs to be shrouded which he did ultimately in the person of Jesus, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He needs to ensure that the penalty for sin is perfectly upheld and that the relational fallout from sin is managed and reversed. Hence, Jesus took on full humanity and paid the price for our sin and endured the righteous wrath the The only reason that we're still not sacrificing animals here and now, the reason I'm not getting a goat and splashing its blood and burning the thing, it's not because we live in a different time and culture. That's not the reason. It's only because Jesus has, in reality, completely carried out everything that the book of Leviticus gave us a picture of. What it gave us the picture of, he has done in reality and that task needed to be done absolutely perfectly and the only one good enough and perfect enough to do it is god alone that's why in psalm 24 the king of glory who can ascend god's mountain and have the gates lifted up for him is also only the lord almighty jesus christ is the lord almighty which is why he was able to make salvation possible for those he chooses to represent as as our high priest, who ascended into God's true heavenly tabernacle, the true mountain, upon his resurrection from the dead. And because he chose to unite us with him by his spirit, we can now rejoice at the words of the writer to the Hebrews, where he says, but you, and this is us, Have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator, there he is, of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, on whose account Cain could not come. When I get a really awesome guitar, I can't help but want to find out how it was crafted, how the builders designed it, what choices of wood and hardware we used, how they engineered the weight distribution. When my dear wife watches a series that she really loves... She always wants to watch the extra features at the end where it tells you how it was made and what the actors were thinking and stuff like that. It's just natural. When there's something really awesome, we want to know the nitty-gritty. Friends, we've been given a wonderful gospel by which we've been saved, by which the holy God dwells with us both now and into eternity and by which we have in confidence ascended the mountain of the Lord. Bold we approach his eternal throne. Let's find out how that was crafted. Let's read the book of Leviticus. Amen.